Hi, I'm Francis Hellier, and welcome to my brand new podcast, Metaverse. This is a podcast for the future-minded, a series for anyone on the hunt for the next big thing and all its possibilities and implications. This is Tomorrow's World Today. With each episode, I will chat to those at the top of their fields, from futurists in crypto and space travel to forecasters in business and tech. Together, we will ask the question, what's next? Today, I'm joined by Alexandra Whittington, futurist, public speaker, and lecturer. As an adjunct lecturer at the University of Houston, she teaches courses which cover the impact of technology on society and the future of human ecosystems. Co-author and editor of many books, her most recent title, Opportunities, Scenarios for a Post-Pandemic Future, explores the type of future we might be experiencing once this crisis has passed. Alexandra has enjoyed a long career in the research and consulting space and has participated in projects for companies including Lego, Nestle, and Huawei, to name just a few. Additionally, she has served as part of many associations, such as the Association of Professional Futurists, and has also been recognized as one of Forbes' world's top women futurists. Alexandra, welcome to the show. Thanks, Francis. Thank you for having me. So let's dive straight in. What attracted you to the world of futurism, and what excites you about looking forward rather than looking back? Great question. Thank you. I, you know, I am one of the few futurists that I know of my generation, I guess you would say, that arrived at futurism through an academic pathway. I actually took a college course about futurology. I think it was called Intro to Future Studies. I'm pretty sure. Um, and I should remember that because to make a long story short, I ended up teaching that class some 15 years later. I took it as an anthropology major. I was studying anthropology at the University of Houston. And one of my anthropology professors had attended the World Future Society conference over the summer. Um, the World Future Society is a huge organization that's been around for, I don't know, 50, 60 years, something like that. It's an international organization that it really is open to, you know, just any average person who would like to be a futurist, you know, as ranging from average, normal, everyday people to professional futurists. So she ended up going to that conference and forming a course. I took the course and as an anthropology major to kind of answer both your questions at once, it makes a lot of sense to me that anthropologists would be interested in the future because it's, you know, where our species is headed. I'm really interested in looking at us as one of the many living species on this planet. And we adapt, we evolve, we create technologies to do the things that we need to do to survive and ensure that future generations keep going. So I think that that's my perspective. I'm an anthropologist looking at the future as, you know, our next step forward. And we have to do it strategically, optimistically, and, you know, fairly, justly for everyone. So what excites you particularly, though, about looking forward? I mean, what is it, what is it that uh, floats your boat, as it were? I guess what I enjoy about being a futurist the most is the fact that I get to use creativity as well as, say, you know, research skills. It's a mix of both, and that makes it a really unique career because I don't just base my scenarios on research, even though they are evidence-based, and I certainly document everything I've published with lots and lots of you know, verifiable facts that support the possible existence of these futures. But it also in involves a bit of creative thinking, right? I have to be able to look at what I've researched, but also synthesize it with some of the more, you know, uh, far out ideas that are out there that either I've encountered or thought of myself or worked with other people on. So that's the cool mix that attracts me. When I was at school, they didn't have a futurology as a, a potential course for me to study. So I'm a little bit disappointed now looking back. 
So I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm very happy that you were able to do that. You've written many articles about the future, and particularly from a feminist perspective. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Sure. Uh, one of the things that I've brought with me as a futurist from, I guess, my other interests is my interest in gender studies and gender equality. And I feel that the feminist lens has really been missing from the futurist field. The futurist profession emerged from the military in the post-World War II period. It's not a very feminine space. Uh, and when you look at the trajectory of uh, the backwards trajectory, right, the, the timeline of the futurist research and the futurist writing and topics, it's all about stuff uh, techno technologically oriented. There, you can find tons of studies on the future of the car, the future of the home, the future of computers. That's a, you know, well-worn topic. But what's not so common is uh, studies on things that I've written about, like the future of the family, the future of childhood future of breastfeeding. <laughs> uh, I've decided as a futurist, as a researcher, to look at social issues that are timeless, right, and universal. And a lot of them are feminine in nature or feminist, you might say, because I think that th that little corner has been excluded, unfortunately, by and large from the future studies field. It's been a male-dominated field for a long time. It's changing. But um, I, I'm, I hope to change it more through the research and through the topics that I choose to look at, because, uh, you know, the family, I, I believe, is the microcosm of society. Right. So if we look at what's changing in our households and our families in the way that we organize our relationships, we can learn a lot about the direction of the future. Now, the pandemic has been one of the defining events of our lifetimes. What long term impacts do you think will come of this era? Well, you're absolutely right. I think we're living through a historic time um, and the people in the future are going to talk about us. They're going to reflect on what we did. They're going to analyze it. They're going to hash it out, right? Rehash it. So it puts us in a, in a different spot than I think we were in, you know, 2019, early 2019. Um, so I think one of the biggest lessons or changes, I guess, shifts that we're, we're experiencing is demographic demographic changes are going to be huge. Um, and I can relate this to the sort of feminist angle that I put on things, but you know, one of the examples is childbirth has completely plummeted in the Western countries since the pandemic. Europe and the US are already declining. We've known this for a while, but it's become even more marked, okay? Meanwhile, developing countries have seen their population growth grow and explode actually, because the previous systems that were there, those public health systems that were protecting um, women's health and providing contraception, a lot of those faltered, right? We, we had to pay more attention to COVID. So there's a mix of demographic shifts going on, exacerbated shifts, as well as new shifts. Um, one of them is the fact that, you know, women were really pushed out of the workforce. This is a very universal finding women were sort of pushed back because we had this big uh, school closure. Um, you know, when kids are not in school, women can't work. And that was not really obvious until the pandemic, but now I think it is. So I think that recognition is going to change society. Um, you guys um, in the, you know, in Europe and the UK, you have a much better social safety net than we do in the States. And I think that perhaps we'll look to you guys as an example of what we can do to protect against future, let's face it, you know, it's an economic shock. Pandemic was an economic shock. And when half of the workforce is forced to, you know, look after the kids, it's really going to change things. So I think that's an important realization. 
let's let's change tack then slightly. So let's look at artificial intelligence. It's playing a massive part in in all our lives, even if we perhaps don't realize it. Um, what are your thoughts on AI, and is it a force for good or evil? I've done a lot of research on AI and written quite a bit about it. Um, and I think that there's there are a lot of compelling scenarios out there regarding artificial intelligence. I think there I think artificial intelligence is actually one of the key uncertainties that we have going forward, that once we sort of reconcile our relationship with it, it's going to shape the future, possibly for decades. Um, right now, I have read a lot of studies that say people are quite concerned that AI is going to take their job, robots are going to replace them. And so there's a mix of fear and sort of contentment, because at the same time, we're, we're using AI every day, whether it's the autocorrect on your phone or the Netflix suggestions or whatever it might be. And we don't realize it. I think most people don't realize they're interacting with AI. So we're at this sort of strange place where we're already using it, uh, but we're not really incredibly aware of it. And it's sort of on the, on the tipping point of being able to dictate certain aspects of our lives, the way we do our job or the way we live. Uh, so I, I think that once we determine our relationship with it, it's going to be settled for quite some time and it's going to set the way things are for quite some time. And two of the scenarios that I've talked about a lot are called Big Brother and Big Mother. These are the two AI scenarios. Uh, Big Brother is the one we all know from, you know, from way back, right? Big Brother is the scary, frightening, spying on you, wants to get you, you know, wants to bust you doing crimes and all that. <laughs> and then there's the Big Mother who's like the nice AI that wants to help you eat well, find a good partner to date or marry, um, you know, walk your steps every day and remember people's birthdays, you know? So there's the two forces of AI that one kind of cares about you and takes care of you. The other one sort of keeps you in line and threatens you if you act up. So I think that it may not be one of the two extremes, but I, if we look at those extremes, we may be able to draw some conclusions about what we have going forward. I definitely prefer the uh, big mother over the dystopian Orwellian <laughs> 1984 <laughs> scenario. It's interesting, actually, with, because both those uh, topics we've discussed, both of them you've discussed uh, employment and jobs and, and uh, you know, how that's going to change, uh, both in terms of the pandemic and, and, and uh, women find it difficult to raise children and go to work. And similarly with artificial intelligence about that affecting jobs as well. So do you, how do you foresee all of these things combining together and where are we going to go um, over the course of the next few years and decades? Yeah, I think that these issues, as many other people have observed, futurists and otherwise, the issue of work, artificial intelligence, childcare, and um, sort of, you know, just basic survival kind of all coalesce around one topic, which is called universal basic income, sometimes called unconditional basic income. I've heard it called mincome, right? Like a minimum income. <laughs> uh, but this sort of idea of a, of a universal wage, you might say, that every person receives to survive and forming a basic social safety net of cash. It's simply cash payments to people, typically from governments, sometimes from private companies. Sometimes I've even seen like universities, school districts getting uh, active around this topic, but finding ways to support people with money 
so that then their job is either something they really want to do, something that's their passion, or else it's not a job, right? It's an entrepreneurial endeavor. It's a creative endeavor. Uh, it's a teaching, giving endeavor, or perhaps it's a caring endeavor. This might be something that sustains families when children are small before they can enter school, for example, um, and let parents stay home with their kids. So I think that those issues are very important going forward, you know, in terms of like how we're really going to do this. How is our global economy going to keep going, right? If capitalism, I guess is what I'm saying, is to survive, we must take this issue into serious consideration because the mix of AI, work, taking care of families, um, it, it all sort of leads to that conclusion, UBI. Absolutely. I think there's generally two fears of technology. One is a lack of understanding. Therefore, it's like some kind of witchcraft. And the other fear of technology really is, is that technology falling into bad players' hands? Um, and I think artificial intelligence particularly is the thing that people are frightened of. And there's been some you know, major players in the world stage that have warned and cautioned against artificial intelligence. What are the positives, apart from the things you've touched on already? How do you see this developing? How quickly can it develop? You know, I, I don't know. I think that it's an exponential technology that has progress that will surprise us. Um, according to something I read recently from Eric Brynjolfsson, who is a very brilliant scholar about artificial intelligence and robotics, uh, particularly replacing workers, he talks about very recently at a MIT conference, I think, this J curve of AI productivity. Once it enters our workforce, he says, we're right here at the beginning of the J starting to, it's actually, so what happens first is productivity decreases when you introduce a new technology, specifically AI. So it's starting to decrease on that J curve, but pretty soon we're going to see it shoot straight up. And he, I think he said, you know, in the next 10 years, we will see AI productivity in the workplace explode. And that is where, you know, people need to be, will be concerned about their jobs. They'll be looking around going, oh, wow, I used to do that. What am, now what do I do? So I think the opportunity is there for universities, for training, for new careers and industries. People are gonna, I think AI may put people in a position of looking for something new in the next decade, for sure. Okay, tell us about the Invitation to Futurology. What's that all about? Ah, uh, thank you. Yeah, Invitation to Futurology is a uh, speech that I give quite often. Um, and I always change it up, you know, depending on my audience, but it's based on the title of a very well-known American sociology book. I don't know if you have uh, ever heard of it, Invitation to Sociology. And the author, Peter Berger, was, you know, sort of a, you know, celebrity when it came to sociology. He was sort of what you might call the Dr. Spock uh, of uh, sociology, right? The famous child psychologist who wrote the book on child rearing. He wrote this sociology book that people bought and read and kind of learned about sociology. So I copied the title. <laughs> I copied that title and I'm sort of, you know, paying homage to that title because it, I would like to bring futurology, which is, uh, I think, the preferred term in the UK and in Europe, futurology, whereas in the US we say futurism or future studies. Sometimes nowadays it's called strategic foresight. So there are a number of terms. So that's what I talk about in the presentation. What is this field? What are all these terms? Do they mean the same thing? What is a futurist? How do we perform our job? And then I, I like to give um, a lot of current examples. I always update the presentation with current examples of what's changing, what I'm scanning as a futurist and where I think that's leading. 
uh, for that audience. So invitation to futurology, it's a it's a fun talk and I like to make it interactive and you know, it's a class. Sometimes I give a quiz. If you're lucky, you won't get it, but. <laughs> well, I hope I get to see that speech or that talk at some point in the future. So I'm looking forward to that. Outside of artificial intelligence, which you, you've written about extensively, what technologies truly excite you at the moment? Well, I'm really interested in anything around sustainability. There is a design trend known as biophilia, or at least that's what I call it, love of nature, right? And you see it when you look at magazines or new houses, everything's like very natural, the natural wood, the green uh, plants and vegetables, even vegetables, right? You can have a garden in your house, lots of natural light. So I, I'm enjoying the technologies that are sort of feeding that. For example, there's a 3D printed natural wood now so you know you want you you want that expensive natural wood coffee table or whatever right you can see the grain and it's really unique well now they're able to 3d print those types of pieces so they're much more affordable and i actually interviewed um a expert in biophilic design he's an architect for a book a report that i wrote recently about the future of the home and he talked to me about how neuro neuroscientists are starting to discover that the human mind is actually primed to like natural materials because, for example, like natural wood contains these fractals. Fractals are like a mathematical shape, right? That repeat and, and they and they are in nature. So anyway, our brains are predisposed to really like fractals. And when we see them, they make us happy, that we feel calm, we feel good. So knowing that there's now a 3D printing technology that could replicate that. And also I think the science, the neuroscience is an amazing development to understand how our environment affects our brain, right? How does it affect the way we feel and the way we are in our homes or schools or whatever? You know, if we can detect materials that help us learn, for example, that's a great thing to do for schools. And then if we can even better 3D print those and replicate them and get them into the majority of schools, you know, even better. So I'm very interested in sustainability and also understanding, you know, how to enhance human potential, whether it's through nature or other means. I think any way we can do that with our material culture is, is a win-win. I think that's right. And I think lots of people have been fortunately reconnecting back with nature through the pandemic. Um, and I think probably one of the one of the um, takeaways, isn't it, is the fact that we've encroached so far on nature that perhaps that's why these uh, viruses and things get unleashed into, into our society. So it's kind of a double, double take on that. Let's look at your book again. So the most recent book you have out, Opportunities Scenarios for a Post-Pandemic Future, it must be so exciting to see yourself in print, or do you not take the book? Do you just read it digitally? I mean, you are a futurist after all. <laughs> you know, I, I love having paperbacks I, or you know, I love real books, definitely. It is great to be in print. It's exciting to be in print with so many wonderful collaborators. Um, lately, I've been involved in a lot of projects that involve uh, my, my friends and colleagues, futurists from around the world. The pandemic has given us that opportunity as well. You know, we've started meeting and talking on Zoom and getting, you know, ourselves organized because clearly this is a moment for the futurist community, right? Um, so yeah, it's it's great to be involved in publishing with my colleagues and, and provide that sort of mass perspective. Uh, if you go through the book, you'll, you can find a chapter on almost anything. Uh, my chapter is about the future of the home. Uh, I mentioned that's a big area that I'm super interested in. But um, yeah, I think that that's one of the opportunities. What is the home going to be like? How are we going to prefer our homes to be? How are we, what are we going to want? Different features, different 
elements, protection. You know, I feel like the home is becoming more of a haven these days. <laughs> what was it like to collaborate with lots of people on that and get a through line and, and achieve what you want to achieve as, as the narrative? You know, um, so I'm one of the editors of the book, so I had the privilege of reading through all the contributions um, and getting to know all the different writers. And I would say, since it's such an international group of contributors, I enjoyed the different perspectives from around the world, because obviously we're all in our bubbles locally with this. It's been an interesting tension, right, between our local situation and then the big picture, what's happening around the world. I mean, for so many months, that was the first thing we would say when we get on a call with someone from Australia or it's like, what's going on down there? What's what's happening? How is it where you are? Right. And it was so interesting to to learn, you know, different things that matter, because, for example, in the UK, I uh, a lot of my colleagues on the book were from the UK. They had such, you know, you guys had such stringent lockdowns and stuff. Whereas here in Texas, I mean, it wasn't like that at all. Uh, it was, you know, for most, of, for many people, it was like nothing. You know, it, it, we very much did what we wanted. <laughs> and uh, it was interesting contrast when I would talk to people around the world, the other authors or contributors, and they were like, yeah, I can't leave my house today or we can go get groceries once a week. It's just like, wow it really you know opens your mind to understand how different governments countries were dealing with the pandemic do you feel it's important and did you feel it was important to collect your thoughts in a book and was it sort of almost therapeutic in some ways honestly yes however i am doing that through writing my own book that i have been working on um i guess i developed the idea shortly after you know the pandemic uh, it's called uh, Growing Up Corona, and this is about the generation of children who are growing up during the pandemic and how I think they're going to alter the future as a result. So I've been researching, you know, I'm looking at schools, the lockdowns, um, you know, children's psychology, how it's affecting their socialization, grades, family things, you know, I'm, I'm interested in how these young kids, I think, you know, like I said, it's a historic moment. So they are someone they are people that we will look at one day kind of like the people who lived through the depression right in the u.s the great depression or the people in who lived through the the great wars right world war ii um we're going to be like wow what was that like for you and i so i'm kind of documenting it as well as coming up with some future scenarios for what they might do because i think they're going to have a very positive impact on our world once they grow up after living through this I mean, there's an argument our parents' generations and our grandparents' generations have, have done so much damage to the planet that our future generations, they unfortunately have to pick up the pieces. And having just gone through this very difficult period as well, it's quite a lot of pressure to place on, on the youngsters of today, isn't it really? It is. And that's something I talk about in the book is uh, they've been asked to make a great sacrifice. And I think that that has not been fully discussed. You know, I think other generations need to become aware of that, speak to that and um, support what they need to do. It's really their survival that depends on it. Completely agree. All of our survivals, frankly. What's next for you, Alexandra? What's next? Well, um, I'm actually just getting started with a new think tank that has formed, um, the Super Trends Institute, where I will be um, helping people learn about the future. It's mainly an educational pursuit where our clients will sign on to become actually part of a community, a learning community, where I and other facilitators and coaches and educators will be teaching about the future around topics that people would like to learn about the future. So, Well, wish you all the best of luck with that. Thank you so much for being on Metaverse. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Francis. You've been listening to Metaverse with me, Francis Hellier. 
Thank you to my guest, Alexandra Whittington, for a fantastic conversation. Tweet us at MetaversePod with any suggestions or feedback. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, metaverse.fm. Thank you.